This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, God and Emptiness, recorded March 21st, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Mike said that uh, earlier that we at the center here believe from investigation that the mystics of all traditions are pointing to the same ultimate truth. Uh, Fritjof Schoen, a contemporary mystical philosopher, called that the transcendent unity of traditions. But there's a big problem when we start to talk about the transcendent unity of mystical traditions because we run into a stumbling block. And that is that all the mystical traditions, with the exception of one, commonly use positive terms to designate the ultimate reality. So in Hinduism, they call it Brahman. In Judaism, Elohim. Uh, Christianity is God, or actually Deus, because most Christians are uh, speak romance, romance languages, and it's some version of the Latin Deus. Uh, and in Islam, Allah. So the one exception is Buddhism. And Buddhism much prefers to use negative terms. So in the Theravadian schools of Buddhism, the uh, ultimate reality is usually designated by an atta, which is Pali, or an Atman, which is Sanskrit, it's basically the same term, which means no self. No self meaning that human beings and, and uh, animals and insects and so forth have no real self, but also it means that there's no self in anything around us, that all phenomena are coreless is another way of translating that. And then in the Mahayana tradition, the great word is shunyata. Shunyata, which means in Sanskrit, emptiness or voidness. Those are two common ways of translating shunyata. So this sounds very different than a term like Brahman or God or Allah. But is it really? So we're going to investigate this this morning. And first we're going to investigate what emptiness means in the Buddhist tradition, and then we're going to take a look at what God means to mystics in the so-called theistic traditions. And we will then compare them and see if they're all that far apart. So what is shunyata, or emptiness, or voidness in the Buddhist tradition? Well, I think it's important first to start off with saying what it isn't, because it's a very, it can be very misleading, especially as it's translated into English by these two words, voidness or emptiness. Shinyata does not mean a mere vacuity, either a sort of physical vacuity, like a physical vacuum, or a mental vacuity, like a, a vacant mind. Here's what the Tibetan Buddhist Geshe Rabtan says about it. There are many misconceptions about the nature of voidness. Some people think that meditation on voidness means simply emptying the mind of all content and calmly resting in this mental vacuity. But this is merely a blank state of mind. It has nothing whatsoever to do with voidness. So this is important to be clear about this right from the beginning. Meditating on emptiness does not mean sitting there with a blank mind, with nothing arising. Emptiness is not opposed to form either. The way we think of space being opposed to the objects that are, arise in space. So the Prajnaparamita Sutra says... Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is not other than emptiness. So what this is driving at is a non-duality here. It's not, it's not as though there's emptiness over here and then form over here. Somehow they are the same thing. So what? in what way 
is form empty. And now we get to really the heart of what this means in the Buddhist tradition. Really, emptiness means that all forms or all phenomena, including, and in a certain sense, most importantly, ourselves, do not possess or are empty of a quality which we attribute to them. In other words, we believe something about phenomena and ourselves that is not true. And what the phenomena and ourselves are empty of is, in technical Buddhist terms, independent or inherent or objective self-existence. That's a mouthful. So let's take an example to illustrate what this means. If everybody looks over at that stereo cabinet over there, that's a phenomenon, a form. So let me ask you, does that stereo cabinet exist objectively? In its own right, does it have an inherent existence apart from the mind that's cognizing it? Apart from the mind that is perceiving it? What would you just say in your normal, everyday experience? Yes. Yes. Does everybody experience the stereo cabinet that way? When you leave this room, the stereo cabinet's still sitting there, objectively existing, independent of anything uh, you're doing, whether you're seeing it or not. This is what these terms mean. The closest term, actually, in our language today is has an objective existence. It exists objectively. Well, the Buddhist answer is no, it doesn't. Here's what the uh, Buddha of the Lakavatara Sutra says. I teach that the multitudinousness of objects have no reality in themselves, but are only seen of the mind, and therefore are of the nature of maya. Maya is a Sanskrit word that means illusion. So Buddhism is saying, no, that stereo cabinet is empty of that objective existence that we attribute to it. That's what it's empty of. That form is empty of that inherent existence. So the emptiness isn't separate from the form. The emptiness is the true nature of the form. And in fact, our misperception of that stereo cabinet and all other phenomena and ourselves as having some sort of objective inherent existence is what constitutes our fundamental delusion. This is our ignorance. This is our fundamental misperception of the world, ourselves, our experience, and everything else. And it is from this, in the Buddhist analysis, that all our suffering arises, which we can't go into this morning or we'd be here more than just the morning. But this is the fundamental human problem, if you like. In fact, in Buddhism, the problem of all sentient beings who are suffering from delusion. Here's how uh, Geshe Rabtin explains it. At present, all phenomena appear to us falsely. Everything appears to exist inherently, to exist objectively from its own side. For this reason, we say that all our present states of consciousness are deceptive or deluded. Is everybody following this so far? I, I'm not saying whether you should agree with it or not. I'm just telling you what the Buddhists testify to, what they say. So to say that all phenomena are empty is not to deny that they appear to us. The Buddhists aren't saying, oh, that stereo cabinet isn't really appearing to you or appearing in consciousness. There's nothing to do with that. It's not a, uh, a nihilistic view of reality where there's just absolute blankness. 
obviously. I mean, they aren't dummies. They're things appear. But what is the nature of that appearance is the question. What is its true nature, its real nature? So uh, a very common analogy in Buddhism is that our experience is like dream experience in the sense that in dreams there are appearances. All sorts of phenomena appear to us in dreams. Other people appear to us, mountains appear to us, stars, houses, dragons, anything can appear to us. And in the dream, we take them to be objectively real, to have an inherent, independent self-existence. Isn't that the way most of, you, most of the time experience your dreams? We walk around in our dreams, in a dream environment, and the objects in our dreams seem to exist independently of the mind in which they're appearing. So in precisely the same way we are deluded about our dream experience, we are deluded about our waking experience. So here's what um, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist Shamar Rinpoche says. The confused or mistaken mind is like a dreaming mind which thinks that what is taking place is real. One may dream of a child on a beach making a sandcastle, but neither the castle nor the grains of sand composing it are real. They only seem real to the confused dreaming mind. Another uh, way to think of this is, you're all familiar with the story of the emperor's new clothes? Uh, it's a fairy tale kind of story about an emperor who uh, orders these new clothes, and for some reason the tailor dupes him. I don't know how, uh, why, but the tailor explains to him that these are the most gorgeous, precious clothes in the world, but only very wise people can see them. So the emperor, of course, uh, pretends that he sees them because he doesn't want to admit that he isn't uh, wise. And then he parades around in these invisible clothes, and of course he's stark naked, and all the courtiers uh, also pretend that they see the clothes. Well, this is the inverse of the emperor's new clothes. The clothes are there, but there's no emperor inside them. You following this? So, this emptiness, this voidness of any inherent objective existence is the nature of all appearances, whether we're dreaming, whether we're waking, uh, in whatever state we happen to be in. So the Buddhists say, well then, that is their true nature. That is their fundamental nature. That is the reality. It's a, it's a funny negative way of putting it. Do you follow this? So the ultimate reality of everything is that it is empty of any inherent existence. Uh, here's how the Tibetan Lama Yeshi describes it. We and all other phenomena, without exception, are empty of even the smallest atom of self-existence. And it is this emptiness that is the ultimate nature of everything that exists. Is everybody following this? Does anybody have any questions at this point? I mean, just questions of what the Buddhists mean here, or what this emptiness means in this context. <clears throat> Don't be embarrassed now, so speak up. Yeah. Well, I first thought when you said that's negative, I wondered why you call it negative. Well, it is a negative way, in a certain sense, of describing ultimate reality. It's not saying ultimate reality is something positive. It's saying that it is, it is not something that we okay, mistake it to be. Yeah, I still get confused on the self-existence. The stair of cabinets is a good example. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a dream, I understand that there's nothing materially behind it that anybody else would agree on. And this has always been my confusion is that I think most of us in the room, at least in the materialistic view, could go up and touch that cabinet. We believe that when we walk out in the room, other people could see the same thing the same way. So right. I'm confused about the relationship between the physical materialism of the cabinet versus the... Um, the self-existent, I mean, that term throws me. Well, they're very close. Materialists, of course, believe exactly that everything, uh, or at least these objects, have inherent self-existence. 
they don't believe dream objects do, but they right. do believe our waking world, the objects in our waking world uh, do. Uh, but now this is interesting because in your dreams, do you ever encounter other people in your dreams? Yeah. And do they agree that this environment is real? We don't discuss it. I presume they would. Let me ask you this. Do you normally discuss it with uh, with people in waking life? Even? I'm going to start. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Everybody in the dream behaves as though this world were real as well as you, right? Yes. So then you say, but in the waking life, we all agree. But you all agree in the dream, too. It's very interesting uh, thing to pursue here. I don't want to go on a big digression. But what is the difference between, really, waking life and dreaming life. How do you know you are not dreaming now? This is a, a question that Hume took up. I mentioned Hume earlier, he's a Western philosopher. And he arrived, he could not figure out a really foolproof way to know. He finally said, well, generally, waking life seems more vivid to us. The impressions in waking life seem more vivid. But then he had to admit that there are certain dream states, like in delirium, where the dream is more vivid. So even that isn't foolproof. But does anybody have any uh, suggestions how you could tell? Yes. Well, uh, there's a philosopher called W.T. Stace that I have been reading. Oh, yeah. And he suggests mm -hmm. that it's the order that we know that the causes, that there's a certain way that things are orderly, the rules of uh, nature, or that this is the way you know. Well, let me ask you this. First of all, have you ever woken up from a dream? <laughs> and be convinced that you've really woken up and found out you're still dreaming? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Right. And I remember in my dream writing out the dream that I just had. <laughs> so, dreams, what I'm saying is dreams can mimic the order of waking life. Things can seem can. very orderly in dreams. But you were asking for some way that we, we right. figure is the way. Right, but I'm just seeing if we have a foolproof way. These are ways that tend to make us think that. So... Has anybody else had this experience of waking up and, and thinking you're awake and then and everything seems very wakeful and then you realize you wake up again and also in waking life occasionally things don't follow our what we call the laws of nature. Has anybody ever had that experience? They seem to be orderly. But every once in a while there's what's called an anomaly happens. What was that? So again, they're not foolproof, yes. I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and, and time seems to be something in the waking life that we're very conscious of that we don't always seem to be conscious of in dreams. And it seems to order even more our waking life than in dreams. Yes, this is true. I think, uh, though, particularly uh, if you get into deep meditation, you'll find that will change for waking life that, oh, yeah. that you know we this is very interesting because part of our sense that time is so orderly is our idea our conception of time which we superimpose upon our experience exactly but just for the general run-of-the-mill population if you're going to ask that maybe no these are these are and these are you know it's good that we have uh, some way of making these <laughs> distinctions but i'm asking really here is there some foolproof way, some definite way to tell. It's Karen. Well, like if you killed yourself, you'd be dead. <laughs> Have you ever killed yourself? <laughs> Have you ever killed yourself? Oh, good answer. Uh, no. Yeah. Not Either in dream or waking life. <laughs> well, in, in a dream, I haven't killed myself, but I've, like, died, but then... I will probably wake up. Well, the Tibetans say that's what's going to happen to you when you die, by the way. You're going to wake up in a bardo state or whatever. Yeah. Uh, just to, yeah. the Tibetans have one uh, cute way of uh, saying how you can be almost certain that you are, whether you're dreaming or awake. And that is, if you are dreaming, if you have a text, if you can read the text three times and it stays stable, you're probably awake. If the text starts changing on you as, as you're reading it, you're probably dreaming. Well, you know, that happens to me, uh, uh, like, for example, the book that we're using now. 
I have read it about four or five times, and it keeps changing every time. Well, you're dreaming. <laughs> yes, as we get older, yes. too. <laughs> it gets harder to tell. All right, let's move on here a little bit. Uh, this is interesting, though. You see, this is how you can investigate these uh, highfalutin-sounding philosophical teachings in your own experience, and that's why I wanted to have this discussion, because ultimately it's just tremendously important to us, each of us personally, uh, if the Buddhists are correct. Now we understand, hopefully, what emptiness means in the Buddhist tradition. It is the emptiness of the inherent or objective existence of any phenomena or selves. Now let's look at how the ultimate nature of reality is expressed in the so-called theistic traditions. I say so-called here, not, not as a put-down, but um, the traditions certainly are uh, overall theistic. They are belief in a god and a creator god and so forth. But we are just, of course, talking about the mystics in these traditions. Now, the mystics in these traditions do talk in terms of the tradition. So I'm just putting little quotes around the theism here, and we're going to see how theistic it actually is. Here's what uh, the great Hindu sage Shankar says. The universe is nothing but Brahman. It has no separate existence apart from its ground. It can never be anything else but Brahman. Apart from Brahman, it does not exist. There is nothing besides Brahman. So we could use the term emptiness here very easily. The phenomena of the universe are empty of any independent existence apart from Brahman. There is no independent stereo cabinet sitting over there. It has no uh, self-existence. Its fundamental nature is Brahman. Wait now before we see what Brahman is. But that's what Shankar is saying. And that is true of all phenomena. So the gong, the clock, all that. None of, none of these things have independent existence. They are, all, uh, they are all forms of, if you like, Brahman. Uh, here's what the Christian mystic John Scotus Eregina writes. When we hear that God makes all things... We ought to understand nothing else than, than that God is the essence of all things. For only he truly exists by himself. And he alone is everything which, in the things that are, is truly said to be. Does everybody follow that? Things don't have independent essence. God is the essence of all the things that we say are. They don't really exist. God really exists. But the things don't exist in themselves. So just like, uh, like in the Hindu tradition, Brahman is the essence of everything. Nothing exists apart from Brahman. Nothing exists apart from God. Here's um, the great Kabbalist, uh, Jewish mystic, Joseph Gikatila. <laughs> Spanish. Does that sound... You don't speak Spanish, you speak French. Gicatila. He was a 13th century Kabbalist, I believe. Here's what he says of God. He fills everything and he is everything. See, same thing. Very succinctly. And then finally, here's the great Sufi, Ibn Arabi. The existence of non-God that is, the existence of the creature is pure non-existence, having no substantial basis. In other words, empty of any inherent existence, any substantial basis. It's the same, same thing. And moreover, in all these uh, theistic mystical traditions... Our ordinary perception of things is precisely compared to our deluded perception in the dream state. So this is not just a Buddhist idea. This is one of the most common metaphors that runs through all mystical traditions. And indeed, it's not really a metaphor. It's, it's a, uh, a microcosm in our dream state of our experience macrocosmically. So here's Shankara again. 
In dream, the mind is emptied of the objective universe, but it creates by its own power a complete universe of subject and object. The waking state is only a prolonged dream. The phenomenal universe exists in the mind. So he's saying very explicitly, this universe, this experience is just like a dream. It exists in our minds just like dream appearances exist in our minds. It has no inherent objective existence. <clears throat> and here's Ibn Arabi. When a man ascends in the degrees of gnosis, he will come to know through both faith and unveiling that he is a dreamer in a state of ordinary wakefulness and that the situation in which he dwells is a dream. So through spiritual insight, we begin to realize, wait a minute, this is a dream too. And then finally, here's the Christian brother Lawrence, and he's just describing his experience after awakening. The whole world seems to me to be no longer real. All that my outward eyes behold pass like fantasies and dreams. So again, all these mystics are pointing to dreams to tell us something about the nature of our waking experience, to tell us some truth about it. So, according to theistic mystics, all phenomena are also empty of any substantial basis, inherent existence, objective existence. In that sense, they aren't real. Only God is real. Only God is real. Now, there still seems to be a big difference between them and the Buddhists. Because, of course, Buddhists deny the existence of God. There is no such thing as God in Buddhism. So, oh, so that's a big difference again. But, surprisingly, the mystics of the theistic traditions agree. There is no such thing as God. Here's what Shankara says of uh, Atman and Brahman. Atman is the uh, Sanskrit term for self. And Brahman is the ultimate reality, the term for the ultimate reality. Brahman may refer to God. The Atman may refer to the individual soul. But these attributes are caused by Maya and her effects and are superimposed upon God and upon the individual soul. When they have been completely eliminated, neither soul nor God remain. So ultimately, Brahman is not a thing with attributes. Anything substantial in that sense of, of, of uh, molecules or atoms or anything. In fact, in Buddhism, uh, in, excuse me, in Hinduism, they talk specifically about Brahman as being without attributes, without qualities, without anything you could get your hands on. Here's what Gershom Sholem writes about the Kabbalists. He's a great scholar of Kabbalism. The hidden God, the innermost being of divinity, so to speak, has neither qualities nor attributes. It is empty of qualities or attributes. And Ibn Arabi says of God, He is not accompanied by thingness, nor do we ascribe it to him. The negation of thingness from him is one of his essential attributes. That's very Buddhistic. <laughs> you see what I mean? The negation of thingness is one of God's essential attributes. But there's an attribute. Yes, but it's a ne <laughs> negative attribute. Just like you could, you could say emptiness is the attribute of things. We're starting to play with language here. But it's the exact same thing. A Buddhist would have no hesitation to say that the negation of thingness is the fundamental nature of reality. And that's exactly what he's saying. Because Allah is the fundamental nature of reality, the, the really the only reality. And so what is Allah? Well, one of the, the only thing you can say about him really is to say it's the negation of thingness. 
<clears throat> and then finally, here's Dionysius the Arapagan, who's a great Christian mystic. And he's writing at this point, he doesn't even want to call God God, he's calling God the ultimate nameless. The ultimate nameless is, is within our intellects, souls, and bodies, in heaven, on earth. And whilst remaining the same in itself, it is at once in and around and above the world, super celestial, super essential, a sun, a star, fire, water, spirit, dew, cloud, stone, rock, all that is, yet it is nothing. God is nothing. God is not a thing. So really what we have here is uh, the same uh, description of ultimate reality, except that the theistic mystics take an extra step. The Buddhists say nothing is real. The theistic mystics say nothing is real but God, and God is not a thing. <laughs> you see, is everybody following this? Any any questions here? So, uh, according to Leibniz, Leibniz, has anybody know how to pronounce him? What? Leibniz. Leibniz's law is the law of the identity of indiscernibles. And that means if you cannot distinguish one thing from another, then they are identical. And so uh, if we talk about anything, even let's say I had two gongs exactly alike, but they are, they are distinguishable in space, they are discernible because they occupy two different positions in space, then they are not actually completely identical. And uh, his law really is to say that each thing in the universe, each phenomenon in a certain sense is unique. But... If we want to apply that law to nothing, there is no way to distinguish nothing from nothing. <laughs> and so they are identical. So the nothingness of Buddhism and the nothingness of the theistic mystics is identical. <laughs> or as Shakespeare might have said, a nothing by any other name is a nothing and just the same. <laughs> But then we can ask, why do the theistic mystics need this concept of God in the first place? And there are two answers to this. One is a historical answer, and that is that these mystics were trained in a tradition, Christianity or Islam or uh, Judaism, and the terminology of that tradition includes words like God and Allah and Elohim and so forth. And so this is the language, their spiritual language, in which they are trained and their practices are expressed and so forth. So they, uh, they grow up with this language, and as they progress, they come to deeper and deeper understandings of what these terms mean from a mystic's point of view. Until finally, with Gnosis, with enlightenment, with a breakthrough, they come to that final understanding that God is a nothing. And here's very specifically Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, to give one example, talking about his, what he calls breakthrough, which is nothing else but gnosis or enlightenment. He says, in this breaking through, when I come to be free of will of myself and of God's will and of all his works and of God himself, then I am above all created things and, and I am neither God nor creature. And I receive such riches that God, as he is God, cannot suffice me. For in this breaking through, I receive that God and I are one. Now, you know, this is a, a terrible uh, statement to make in these theistic traditions, that I am one with God. People have been, uh, you know, killed for this. Elijah, a great a Sufi, was uh, murdered for saying, basically, I am the truth, uh, al-Haq, which is a word for God. But they don't mean that the ego is God. Meister Eckhart isn't saying, I discovered that my ego is God. What he's saying is he discovered his fundamental nature is God. And God's fundamental nature is nothing, emptiness. And so they are indistinguishable. 
the fundamental nature of everything is indistinguishable, not just Meister Eckhart. So uh, uh, Ibn Arabi writes, for instance, about in the ultimate nature of things, there is no difference between an insect and a human being to God. No difference in the sense their relationship to God is exactly the same because God is their fundamental nature. It's only relatively that we can make distinctions. And no mystics deny the convenience of making relative distinctions. It does not mean, by the way, we live in a relative world. That is a, a mistake. It's not like there's some other world. The absolute nature of this relative world is emptiness. Now, historically, Buddha grew up in a Hindu tradition, but he broke with that tradition. He stepped outside of that tradition to attain his enlightenment. In a certain sense, that tradition failed him, at least as the stories come down to us about his path. He studied with the mystics of the uh, Hindu tradition, and he attained these high states of samadhi, and he was, we can gather, trying to attain union with some god, Brahma. And when he abandoned that approach, and when he just sat under the Bodhi tree, he attained his enlightenment. And we can surmise that one of the things he realized is the mistake he'd been making is objectifying Brahma as some object, some thing, some god. And of course, his realization was exactly Meister Eckhart's realization. And he would, have, he would have said, God will not suffice you. There is no creator God in the sense of a being out there that is separate from all of this. So his teaching is a corrective to uh, a misconception that easily develops in all our minds about the nature of ultimate reality when we use positive terms. We reify those terms. That's a very uh, good word to know uh, on a spiritual path. Reify means the mind takes a distinction and makes a reality out of it. And so uh, we have an idea, and then we start treating that idea as though it were a concrete reality. That's what reify means. And it's almost inevitable, our minds, when we hear God, go to some being, something, something like that. So this is why the Buddhist tradition historically developed without this term. But uh, God, the term, is not just some extraneous sort of conceptual residue of exoteric traditions. It does have actual positive benefits, or whatever other positive term, Brahman or Allah or whatever. And it's not just a question of explaining it away. First of all, negative terms like shunyata, like emptiness, like voidness, can give an opposite and, and just as false impression of a kind of a nihilism, as I said earlier, that, that, that everything is empty, meaning that there's just nothing, period. If you got enlightened, all these appearances would just vanish. It would just be a, a, a blankness, a total blank vacuity. And this is an impression that Buddhists themselves form when they hear these negative terms like shunyata. And so all through the Mahayana tradition, particularly, you'll find teachers trying to correct this, to combat this. So, for instance, here's the Zen master Huang Po, who lived in China back in the, I don't know what century. All these phenomena are intrinsically void, and yet this mind which which they are identical is no mere nothingness. By this I mean that it does exist, but in a way too marvelous for us to comprehend conceptually. It is an existence which is no existence, a non-existence which is nevertheless existence. So this true void does in some marvelous way exist. Now, you see, he cleared it all up for you. <laughs> and, of course, this is what happens. We start running into paradoxes. Uh, mystics, uh, whenever they try to really talk about the ultimate nature of reality. 
But notice what he's doing here. He's trying to correct a misconception that can arise out of just using negative terms like void or emptiness. And notice he uses this term mind. He says, uh, all these phenomena are intrinsically void, and yet this mind with which they are identical is no mere nothingness. So he's actually slipped in a positive term to, de to describe the ultimate nature of reality. And you will find that, in, uh, particularly in Buddhism, uh, this is quite common. They'll talk about big mind or universal mind or one mind. And in the Tibetan tradition, they'll talk about primordial awareness or intrinsic awareness. So these are positive terms that Buddhists have had to use to combat the, the opposite uh, impression that in a sense, we reify even negative things. We make a, an absolute no thing out of nothing. And then other traditions have also used similar terms when trying to describe God. The Jews and Christians talk about the mind of God or the divine mind or use spirit, which is really an archaic form of uh, consciousness or mind. The Sufis uh, point to a verse or several verses, places in the Quran where Allah is described as the seeing and the hearing. And that is consciousness, the seeing and the hearing. And specifically, Allah says he is the seeing and hearing of his servants. So uh, this seeing and this hearing, this mind, this consciousness is Allah, according to the Sufis. And in Hinduism, Brahman is described as pure consciousness of conscious beings. So even when we start using positive terms here to, to describe what is God or what is Allah, and we compare it with Buddhism, we see there's a, a real convergence. They're all picking terms that have something to do with mind or consciousness or awareness. And uh, this is actually a very good term. We like at the center here, consciousness. It's uh, kind of modern. It ties into things about quantum mechanics and so forth. But it's also... Uh, an interesting term in this respect. It dispels this nihilistic impression that we're talking about a, a, an absolute nothingness, but it also preserves in a funny way the idea of no thingness. And this is something you can go investigate on your own. Is consciousness a thing? Does consciousness have any attributes or qualities or limits? What color is it? How much does it weigh? What size is it? You see, you can ask yourself these questions and you will uh, start to get an idea of how something could be empty of any attributes and yet still in, as to quote uh, Wang Po, in some marvelous way exist. So consciousness is, I like it as a very good sort of middle term here a meeting of the negative and the positive, because it, it sort of incorporates both in that. In any case, the second benefit of using positive conceptions for the ultimate reality is it gives a, uh, it supplies an object for the practice of devotion. And this is a very powerful practice. It's not just some exoteric practice. And in point of fact, you may think you're too sophisticated for devotion because that seems to be being devoted to some uh, being or big daddy in the sky or something. But it, it is actually a tremendously powerful practice and even Buddhists objectify enlightenment or big mind or uh, whatever term, positive term is here. So a Buddhist, uh, a practicing Buddhist, sits around and thinks, someday I'm going to attain one mind, as though it were something else than what's here, the, the reality of your present condition right now. You see, the, the same process is at work. It's an object, objectification, taking a term and objectifying it. Oh, I'm not enlightened yet. That's ridiculous to say. I mean, people believe that. That's the unfortunate problem. But it's absolutely ridiculous to say. As though enlightenment were something apart from what is present right now. It's just like saying, oh, I'm not God yet. 
But what the mystics don't say, oh, yes, you're not God yet, but someday you can become God. No, they say, look, and you will see you are God. That is your fundamental nature right now, this moment. So this objectification process goes on, whether you're a very sophisticated uh, Buddhist philosopher or whether you're a simple uh, devotee who's, uh, who's responding with their heart to the call of our true nature. So talking about God or Allah or the beloved can be a part of a very, very powerful practice. And so much so that even in certain Buddhist schools, they recognize this, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism. So let me just read you a description here by Dilgo Kinsei, a Rinpoche, and he's talking about a, a practice called deity yoga, which is a, a very uh, standard Tibetan Buddhist practice. And their conception is that the ultimate reality manifests as certain wisdom deities just for this practice, out of compassion, so you can practice with them and do devotional practices. So uh, here's Dilgo talking about Chen Redzi, uh, who's one of the deities. Chen Redzi, the lord of all mandalas, is the supreme meditation deity, and the recitation of his mantra is particularly powerful, imbued with great blessings, and effective in relieving the suffering of beings. To meditate constantly on Chen Redzi with unwavering devotion is therefore a particularly effective way to make progress on the path. So he's, he's saying this devotion is a very powerful practice and you shouldn't overlook it. Now, the Tibetans stress that these deities themselves are empty of any inherent existence. They are not to be taken as ultimate reality. But you find the same thing in the so-called theistic traditions. Listen, for instance, to Rumi, a great Sufi poet. He says, The beloved's image is like Abraham, in form an idol, in meaning an idol smasher. Now, I'm not quite sure, frankly, what the reference to Abraham is. If you read it in the original Arabic, it'd probably be obvious to you. But the idea is very clear. The beloved's image is like Abraham, in form an idol, in meaning an idol smasher. The image of the beloved, of God, Allah, is in form an idol because it is an image, but its meaning, its use is going to be to smash idols. And then he goes on. Other images run before thy image, like the minds of prisoners at the cry freedom. So in other words, when you are focused on Allah, on God, all the other images that clutter your mind, that distract you and so forth, take off. And th that image becomes the cry of freedom to you. But then he says about himself, I am he who carves idols from his images. But when the time of union comes, then I smash the idols. So this is a very poetic way of telling you that these images we have of God, these conceptions, even God as the beloved out there, something that you devote yourself to, surrender to, ultimately don't have any inherent objective existence. And ultimately you have to surrender that delusion that they do. But in the meantime, it's still a very powerful practice. Surrender is, is one of the keys to a spiritual path, and most people find it difficult uh, to surrender if they don't have some sense of something to surrender to. So, to summarize here, if we make a closer analysis of Buddhism and these other uh, so-called theistic uh, traditions, at least the mystics of those traditions, we see that really the difference is much more just one of emphasis. Uh, and there are two technical words for this that are come from the uh, Christian theology. One is apophatic and the one is cataphatic. And apophatic means to employ negative uh, descriptions of God, and cataphatic means to employ positive descriptions or make positive assertions of God. And they come from the Greek. And apophatic comes from to say, and apo is not say, and kato is to affirm or something. Anyway, uh, these are technical terms that go back before the Middle Ages that, that uh, mystics developed in Western theology. And so uh, you can either describe ultimate reality 
apophatically or cataphatically, either in terms of negative or in terms of the positive. And Buddhists tend to uh, favor the apophatic. And the Christian mystics and uh, Muslim and uh, Jewish mystics make much more use of the cataphatic, although they will also insist that the higher description is the apophatic. So it's really a difference here of emphasis and not a true difference in terms of the reality that's being described. So there really is a transcendent unity of these mystical traditions, or at least we can, as far as we can gather from the texts. And this is very important because we have been approaching this through the text, through what the mystics say. But all the mystics everywhere will agree that the only true proof is your own realization. That really the ultimate nature of reality is beyond all words, all descriptions, all concepts, negative or positive. And that's why all mystics say, you yourself have to realize this truth. And then you will taste for yourself. You will know for yourself. And let me add a, a kind of personal note here. Because... These descriptions sound so uh, sometimes confusing, uh, sometimes or very often very paradoxical, uh, sometimes intriguing, but sometimes contradictory and so forth. But from the point of view of realization, it's really like sitting there in front of a mountain, a beautiful mountain, and all these painters come up and they show you their paintings of this mountain. And some of them are done in a very realistic kind of Renaissance style. Some of them are done by Impressionists. Some of them are done by Japanese brush painters. And they seem very different in terms of if you compare the paintings. But if you're sitting right there with the mountain, there's instant recognition that this is what they're painting. And then there can be uh, just as much appreciation for all the paintings, you don't have to decide which is the best painting or the better painting, even. One may appeal to you personally more than another. One may speak to you more. It's like art. But there isn't the best painting of the mountain. They're all just different paintings of the mountain. And I'll say one other thing. As beautiful as these paintings are, and they are lovely, gorgeous, you ain't seen nothing yet until you've seen the mountain. <laughs> so that's my talk for this morning. Would you, uh, <laughs> any comments or uh, questions? <laughs> Thank you for the feedback. Last time I asked for feedback, I got blank looks. <laughs> Empty looks. In, in the mere vacuity sense of the word. <laughs> Thank you. It was great. It was clarifying. Thank you. Good. Did it help? Yeah, I just uh, I have a question, general question. Sure. Does anyone know German here? Because I was telling Liz that, I, as I recall, Atman uh, yeah. and breath are, means breath in German, and it also means spirit. Could be. Sanskrit, of course, uh, mm -hmm. and the European languages share a common root, right. so there are a lot of words like that. Uh, I believe, I'm not absolutely sure of this, that mm -hmm. Atman and Adam are connected, oh, okay. uh, mm -hmm. even, which is interesting, yeah. that Adam means I, so the first man is I, of the I, the ego. And so it's the breath. And the breath, yes. Yeah. Well, and the breath plays a very prominent uh, part in all the religions throughout the whole mm -hmm. uh, span of the Eurasian continent, uh, you know, things come into being through the breath of God. In the right. Bible, wow. God breathes the spirit into man, so actually... Um, Symbolically, our life is God's life. It's, mm -hmm. it's God's breath. And in the Quran, uh, all of this comes through the breath of the merciful. Allah's mm -hmm. breath is the breath of the merciful and breathes out the, the cosmos and stuff. So it's a primal archetypal image of a dynamic relationship between the divine and the creation. Well, also, you said something about in, in Buddhism, attain, you want to, but the heart's interest is 
there is no attainment. Nothing, you know. Yes. Nothing to attain. Uh, uh, yes, so exactly. Really follow that enlightenment because you already have it. This and is nothing to attain. This is true. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Ibn Arabi, for instance, <clears throat> says the same thing. Uh, about Sufism. In Sufism, the most common way of talking about the end of the path is fana. 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 The passing away of self. And Ibn Arabi says, uh, well, this is actually an oversight because you see, there is no self to pass away. So if you believe in some self that could pass away, that's idolatry. That's setting up something other than Allah. So there's no self to pass away. But then he's, you know, the thing is to realize it. If you realize there is no self, uh, and there's no, you, there's no ceasing to exist or ceasing of a ceasing or anything, this is just the nature of things. Well, that is enlightenment. The other, like fana al fana, to that fana al fana. That yes. is the passing eve of the passing. Oh yes, right. <laughs> this is you can't uh, even identify with the passing, right? And, this, and then again, looking at Buddhism, there's the emptiness of emptiness. So uh, Lama Lodro says, uh, when you realize emptiness and the emptiness of emptiness, then you have attained full enlightenment. But these are, you know, at a certain point, these double negatives are, are really trying to get you to transcend the dualities that language creates. So ultimately, it's beyond attainment or even non-attainment. We don't want to leave the impression that you shouldn't be doing any practices no. because you're already attained, you know, or you're already that. Any other questions or comments? Yes. So should I have two questions? So should I give them to you cash? Or? Uh, give me, <laughs> well, give me one and then give me the, are they related or are they two separate? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, give me the two. Okay, then when you talked about the, uh, the cabin, now, when one, uh, I'm just trying to relate it to dream. <laughs> I can see in an awakened life, sometimes my perceptions, I act on them and I perceive them, then I realize they are wrong. Mm -hmm. But yet, the way I relate it to them is as much as real as I relate it to dreams. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's the same thing with the, the idea of relating to the cabin. Well, uh, yes, in the sense that if I'm understanding your question right, you're saying that even in waking life, you can misperceive phenomena and then for a moment relate to them and then realize that that wasn't right. true. Right, and it's almost like a dream. Right, there's, a, there's a, uh, a mirage on the desert. Yes. Okay, you're driving along the desert. Right. You see water on the desert. Right. Uh, you put your brakes on. If you're driving in a car, going fast, you don't want to hit that water going fast. Well, it's kind of really far, but, you know. <laughs> actually, actually, this happened to me once in the Mojave Desert. I'd never been in the desert before. And I was coming down a hill, and I was going very fast. And it looked like a, the road was flooded. And I did hit the brakes because I didn't want to hit that water. And then it just evaporated as I come up to it, and then it's gone, right? Now, is this what you're talking about? I... I, I, like in a dream, I misperceive, I think there's water out there, and I, I respond to it as though it were real, but it turns out not to be real. Right. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. What mystics are saying is everything is like that. Even the idea of a cabin. Yes. Now, they're not denying that it isn't useful to value our experience differently attach different values to experience. So for instance, uh, I can, in a relative sense, distinguish between a mirage, normally, and a real puddle of water. And it is important to make that distinction because if I look at the real puddle of water and say, oh, it's just a mirage and I do hit it too fast, I might skid and be in an accident. You see what I mean? It's not denying the value of our making these judgments in a relative sense, about our experience. But they aren't ultimately judgments about the nature of reality. They are more judgments in the nature of, um, well, in this case, the nature of regularity of things or expectations. My expectation of hitting the water and skidding is much more likely to pan out than any expectation I had of hitting a mirage and skidding. 
but it's not built into the ultimate nature of reality of things. Bertrand Russell, a famous philosopher, illustrated this by saying it's like a situation or we're like chickens in a barnyard. And since the time we're little chicks, every morning the farmer shows up with, a, with a food. So we come to expect farmer comes food, farmer comes food. It's like a law of nature. And one morning he shows up with a hatchet. <laughs> so we're talking here not about the relative value of making distinctions between a mirage and water. We're talking about what is, though, behind this, the fundamental nature. And really, does water, does a stereo cabinet, does anything have any more reality than an image in a dream? Or is it just that in certain states, if you like, things happen more regularly? As several people said, it seems that things happen much more according to the laws of nature in waking life. Well, you mentioned this. But, you know, we invent or read into these events the laws of nature. They aren't there. <coughs> this is why our ideas, even within the history of science, change radically. So, uh, one last example, gravity. What is gravity? Uh, just, what do you think gravity? It's the uh, space, curve in space. Okay. Spaces. Yeah, all right. So, <laughs> what do you, I, I, good, it's a good thing you did. What do you think gravity is? What do I think it is? Yeah, what is gravity? Magnetic force. A force. Yeah, a force. Anybody else? Is gravity a force? Mm -hmm. Gravity is a force. Okay. okay, now this is a common idea we have. This was the idea of Newtonian mechanics. Gravity is some force. It's like a, like a magnet. It pulls things. It's, you know, that's how we envision this regularity we notice. And that we can even uh, devise mathematical equations, very precise equations, to predict. Einstein comes along, he says it's not a force at all. And this is what Abdullah was saying. It's the curvature of space. So a planet going around the sun isn't being pulled by any force into the sun. It's much more like a, um, what do you call it, a golf ball circling around the dip in a cup, you know? It's just following the ground and it's going to eventually fall in. In Einstein's conception, it isn't a force. It's, objects are just following the, the, the lay of the land, in this case, space. Now, today... There's another theory in the works about gravitrons, which I will not attempt to explain to you, but some sort of little particles. Right. So what I'm saying is within a hundred years, you see, we have different theories. All we really have is a, a, a perceived regularity of phenomena. And then we devise theories to explain that regularity. And then as science progresses and as we get better telescopes or better microscopes or whatever, better experiments, we begin to see that this actually this regularity isn't so regular. Things pop up that we can't explain that are irregular, like what happens to subatomic particles when they go through double splits or even atoms when they go through double splits. So suddenly they're not behaving this way. So we never arrive at any certainty in, in that scientific way of looking at it. And this is all mystics are saying. And we fool ourselves. Our, a certain set of equations and stuff works so well, and we had this explanation that it exists out there, so it just seems so right. But, you know, 500 years, our science is going to be as primitive as uh, Aristotle's science was to us now. All our ideas about this are going to change. So then the regularity is that it'll change. The regularities even change. Actually, and change is the only thing that's regular. <laughs> Whether it's a hundred years or five days, or right? Everything except for the ultimate nature of things, which never changes. It always remains empty. Is that helpful? Yes, yes that answered my question. Now, what's your second question? <laughs> Probably this will lead to we discussed. Um, I'm just trying to reach to. What my understanding of what you're talking about as God or as unity of things. And if one look at us, at everything around us, at 
historically or the way it came from supernovas, atoms and collapsed and so on and so forth. So basically they are one in that sense. They are one. Mm -hmm. And um, so is that when you were saying as kind of you alluded to a little bit that everything is as God and so therefore everything is God and everything really in our immediate experience is really one because it is really one be it if I look at the leaf as part of the tree or I look at things as part of this thing but you know the, the appearance is different mm -hmm. right and I guess yes. as in also the spectrum ideas you know the same so is that what you're saying as God or unity of thing is the yes the unity is uh, in that sense, uh, a unity in time, which is what you're talking about, if we want to look at it that way, that everything came from the Big Bang, according to modern theory. And so the, the essential, whatever substance you want to, if you want to call it that, everything is still made up of that. Right. As one. As, As one. The leaf or right. the, right. the branch. Or the... But it, there's another dimension to the mystic's way of looking at it. It's not just that everything is one in the sense that everything is totally interconnected and we cannot really separate one thing from another. You know, you can't take anything out of the universe and stick it over here. It's all like a tapestry. And, and in this tapestry, you can't pull a thread out. It's, 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 it's not like they're little individual things. It's really more like, a, well, like waves on an ocean. I mean, according to modern science. So it is one in that sense, but it is also one in the sense that in your dream, you could look at a, uh, a stone and a leaf, right? Mm -hmm. And in the dream, you can distinguish them, especially if you're having a very vivid dream, right? right. And, and yet the stone and the leaf, when you wake up and you look back, they're all, what are they made of? Let's put it that way. Yeah, you, you could say mine, or you could say they're all the same in the sense they all had no objective existence. So that, that is their, what unites them all. They're all this, fundamentally the same in that respect. So there's another dimension to the unity of existence when mystics talk about it than to a kind of unity that scientists come up with. Because... If there isn't a unit to existence from a scientific point of view, you couldn't write all these equations and everything. Things wouldn't hang together. In fact, science assumes the unity of nature. But this is a unity at the level of appearance. But we're talking about a unity at the level of a dimension that is, if you like, uh, beneath appearances. The way mind, if you like, is beneath the appearances that arise in a dream. So the answer to the question is yes, but more. All right, we had uh, some good discussions in the middle of this, and we've gone on quite a bit. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And uh, as Mike said, you're welcome to stay, have some tea, chat, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.